The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines. Fed officials discuss longer-term plans to support the economy, such as capping interest rates. But Dallas President Robert Kaplan tells CNBC it's not policy that will drive the recovery, but whether people feel safe to go out again. Going to, to some extent, be willing to put their toe in the water and fly. My concern is, until they feel more comfortable, they're not going to fully engage in previous activities. And that you can't legislate, you can't, you can't stimulate with money. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey opens the door to negative interest rates. This as the UK issues government bonds at the sub-zero level for the first time ever. Given what we've had to do in the last few weeks, it would be no surprise to learn that of course we're actually, of course we're keeping the tools therefore under active review. China's much-delayed National People's Congress is set to get underway. The focus will be on Premier Li Keqiang's work report. Will he signal acceptance of a slower growth rate in the face of coronavirus? New COVID-19 cases hit a daily record across the globe, with Latin America the latest hotspot as Brazil looks set to overtake Russia as the world's second worst affected country. The final leg of the journey, Lufthansa confirms it is in advanced talks with the government over a 9 billion euro state bailout, but says the deal has still not been finalised. A decent all day on Wall Street yesterday as we saw a bounce across on the major averages. Again, technology uh, reclaiming its leadership out in front on the Nasdaq is what we saw. But uh, gains of 1.5% uh, still racking up for the likes of the Dow. It's fourth positive session in five. In terms of some of the big catalysts for the driver, investors still looking at the reopening of economies at this point. The amount of stimulus uh, thrown at the system and we saw in the minutes yesterday from the Fed that effectively that they are still ready to keep interest rates around zero to try and support this economy. So uh, the market's uh, 369 points to the upside. Apple, one of the big moving stocks for the likes of the Dow, but it was Facebook that was a, a big driver for the S&P and also for the Nasdaq. So the platform, what do we hear? The social media platform is talking about shops, uh, which was a big move into e-commerce, creating a virtual mall. So pretty much any seller out there can create a, an interface on Facebook and sell their wares. This uh, caused the stock to rocket to a fresh all-time high, which is quite stunning when you think about how heavily exposed this business is to the advertising market. The bulk of revenues come from advertising, but uh, the diversification plans outlined by Mark Zuckerberg enough to get investors back involved in the stock and pushing it to those highs. It's been a strong play in technology and Apple also playing in that story yesterday. You can see the bounce to $319, a 8.7% gain year to date. Also some compelling news coming out of the oil sector where we have seen a strong rally 
over the last uh, couple of weeks in contrast to the negative rates that we saw flashing up and the market route that uh, happened uh, just over a month ago. The crude inventories report falling by 5 million barrels in the week to May 15. So this drawdown seen is very positive versus the 1.2 million barrel rise that was expected. That news uh, causing the market just to uh, bump a little bit higher. The one week gain now for WTI, 23%. So very strong gains is what we've witnessed. And on Brent prices, uh, we're traveling uh, close to the 36 and a half level. In terms of the oil stocks, uh, this is how it's played out uh, for some of the majors from Exxon, Chevron to Occidental. Very strong gains too across on these charts. Want to take into U.S. Treasury is a huge focus yesterday on this new 20-year bond. And uh, we've got that to show you. It was uh, stunning. The amount of demand that came into the system for this offering, more bids than what was on offer. And effectively, <clears throat> if you look at that yield now, 1.15 is what we've got on the yield 1.22 roughly where we we're at so it has eased a little bit from some of those levels and if you look at the split on the 30 year not much difference in the basis point move between the two about 20 odd uh, basis points between the two so investors are getting into that longer duration bond versus the 10 year 0.66 is what we've got well, Fed officials are considering ways to give further clarity on monetary policy decisions including date-based forward guidance and a pledge to keep interest rates near zero. That is according to minutes from the central bank's April meeting. And members also warned that the coronavirus pandemic may lead to lasting damage on the US economy. Policymakers said the outbreak presented a considerable risk to the outlook, adding that the American labor market may suffer in the long term. Of course, uh, we're shaping up for those initial jobless claims later on today. Now, speaking to CNBC, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan said he was closely monitoring effects to reopen the U.S. economy, but warned of the risk of a second wave of infections. I'm watching carefully how the reopening is going uh, and success in a reopening means that the cases may not continue to decline, but it also means that they don't spike. And so uh, I think this reopening has to happen, but it's got to happen with good testing, contract tracing, good procedures. And that's what I'm watching, because whatever the government says until the consumer is willing to resume some of their previous activities, you know, our, this recovery is not going to be as strong as it as it could be. So do you think it's a situation where they'll open it, but they may not come? They're going to restaurants, and I've made sure to go to restaurants myself just to just to go through the experience. I've stayed in a couple of hotels. Uh, they're going to go. Pe people are going to resume some of their previous activities, as we just heard. They're going to they're they're going to to some extent be willing to put their toe in the water and fly. My concern is until they feel more comfortable, they're not going to fully engage in previous activities. And that you can't legislate, you can't, you can't stimulate with money, that's behavioral. And that's why the, the more we can invest in testing, regular testing, ubiquitous testing, and contract tracing, that's still to me, until we have a vaccine, that gives us the greatest probability for people to be comfortable resuming their previous activities. So yeah, this is now very much behavioral uh, it, it determine how quickly we can grow as we get into the third and fourth quarter. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey has admitted the central bank is considering lowering interest rates into negative territory for the first time ever. 
Speaking to lawmakers, Bailey said he had changed his position on sub-zero rates since last week's decision, but stressed the BOE needed time to weigh the implications of such a move. Bailey's comments came as the UK Treasury auctioned off its first ever negative yielding bond. The British Debt Management Office sold £3.8 billion worth of three-year gilts at a yield of minus 0.003%. Speaking before the UK Parliament's Treasury Committee, Bailey said current conditions mean the BOE must consider all options, including negative rates, to stimulate the economy. We do not rule things out as a matter of principle. I mean, that would be, I think, a foolish thing to do. Um, but can I then follow that up by saying that doesn't mean that we rule things in either? Um, we actually, the MPC has a history really since the financial crisis. So obviously, really since the since the, the, the very sharp uh, cuts in interest rates that happened in the in, in the financial crisis period of keeping under periodic review the, the lower so-called lower bound. And they've done that, the committee has done that several times since the financial crisis, uh, with good reason. And I, and I think it, given what we've had to do in the last few weeks, it would be no surprise to learn that, of course, we're actually, of course, we're keeping the tools, therefore, under active review. Bailey's testimony represents a U-turn in the BOE's policy stance. Speaking to CNBC last week, Deputy Governor Ben Broadband warned negative rates could do more harm than good. We keep under review you know, all our potential policy tools. Um, this is a question that's been thought about, I should say, on and off you know, since the financial crisis. And it's a balanced judgment whether if you cut rates beyond some limit, you actually risk doing more harm than good um, because with deposit rates flawed, you 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 contract the, the margins for banks and may even in the limit encourage them to uh, or risk encouraging them to reduce lending rather than to increase it. So these are the balanced judge, the balanced questions the committee has to think about. Let's get to Richard Kelly, head of global strategy at TD Securities. Richard, central banks in some jurisdictions have been reluctant to move into negative rates, reluctant to take that final step. But the markets are goading them in that direction. So who's right? Do you think we will see the BOE at least embark upon negative rates? Uh, I, I think it's possible, but I don't think it's imminent. And so I think this is where markets need to be a bit patient. I mean, there, there are key structural issues that have to be addressed, you know, both within how this economic recovery can happen in terms of actually being able to have the confidence to get people to spend. So until that point, you're not necessarily incentivizing anything by moving into negative rates. And then there's just the practicalities of dealing with money market funds, with dealing with how, you know, especially in the UK, you've got building societies that are required to have, you know, household deposits. These negative rates aren't generally going to pass on to retail deposits. We have to think about the structure of the markets and, and the effectiveness there of how banks will be funded before you can even move down that route. So I think we have to remember how long it took the ECB and other central banks to really lay the groundwork to, to deliver these policy measures and recognize that there are plenty of other options before we even have to consider this. And so I think this is really a, a 2021 debate rather than anything that's going to come right now. Uh, Richard, when you take a look at the inflation number, clearly there's a challenge, the 0.8% uh, that we've clocked up in April, well and truly off a 2% target that the central bank has been aiming for. But what is the link to staring inflation at this point? Because what we've seen in Europe, uh, just very challenging attempt to try and get back to any form of normal inflation. And typically, a lot of people, when they're looking at a scenario of negative rates, tend to save the money, not spend it. So what is that link to staring inflation? 
Well, I think this is exactly it. I mean, you, you could deliver all the, the economic stimulus and monetary stimulus you want right now, but if we're all still operating under social distancing, if we all still have limitations in terms of, you know, what kind of activities we can get to and where we can spend that money, you're not going to see any of that inflation delivered. And it's really impossible at this point for anyone to offer any significantly solid estimates as to what's going to happen because we just don't know what is the appropriate level that the airline industry is going to have to reduce capacity to? What about in the restaurant and the hospitality side? What about all the ancillary services that go into these industries? Until we figure out what the new supply side is, then we can figure out how much demand we can stimulate. And from there, you know, we, we can deal with the inflation side. What I would say, though, is different than perhaps looking at 0809 and looking at how difficult it has been to generate inflation out of the financial crisis that came through there, there is a significant supply shock on this crisis itself. And so it does look like it does look fairly certain that we are going to have less supply. And because of that, it will be easier for us to generate inflation than would otherwise be the case. That still doesn't mean we're going to be in a stagflation scenario. And it still doesn't mean we need to think that, you know, central banks aren't going to be easing for a significant period of time, because I think we're looking for at least five years before we see, you know, any of the major central banks return to hiking. But I think we do, we do want to be cognizant of you're not going to see that inflation now. However, I think if we're looking out two years, it is more possible that we can get back to somewhat normal inflation. But look at all the central banks that are also talking about running inflation hot now to catch up. So just getting to 2% inflation is no longer going to be enough. Richard, um, Mark Carney was accused of being the flip-flop governor at various stages throughout his tenure as the governor of the Bank of England. Last week, or a week or so ago, Andrew Bailey said that the UK economy was going to rally 15% in 2021, or there or thereabouts. That was their expectations. If you think the market or the economy is going to rally 15% one week, and then the next week you're talking about negative interest rates, do we have actual confidence that the Monetary Policy Committee uh, is consistent? Well, I think that, I mean, the Monetary Policy Committee is one of the ones that helps to ensure how much of a rebound we're going to see in this economy, right? So, you know, I think you want to see them delivering more stimulus. There is no doubt in my mind that we need more stimulus in this economy this year, whether that's, you know, coming on the fiscal side, whether that's further um, action from the Bank of England. My expectation is you're going to see, you know, uh, further uh, additions in quantitative easing and increasing on that side. And then the debate is simply, well, can we have more effective stimulus? via negative rates instead of or in addition to QE. But I think we, we absolutely need more QE. And I think that's baked into the cake if you're going to get that economic rebound next year. Um, just going back to negative rates, if I may, uh, and looking at the experience of the Bank of Japan and the ECB, is there any evidence, any evidence that this policy of negative rates actually works in stimulating economic growth and stimulating inflation? There is evidence that you can see an increase in bank lending and what goes on relative to what would have happened had you not done negative rates. The problem with all these analyses is we have to recognize that all of this is happening in a subpar environment. So it isn't to say that it's as effective as cutting rates from, you know, 3% to 2% um, as cutting them from zero to negative one, but it does look like the concerns that it would somehow destroy lending supply, lending demand don't happen. It, it does generate more 
lower than it hurts. But obviously, over time, it then the evidence is it does feed through into your net interest margins. It does impair bank fund. It does impair bank profitability, which then impairs some of their ability to lend. So it isn't as effective as some other tools, but it does still generate more positives than negatives. And we can address some of those negatives by dealing with interest rate tiering like the ECB and, and or like the ECB and the BOJ have delivered uh, by working through the system. So I think this is the, the side that we have to recognize. It's just less good, but it's not bad. And it's, it's trying to make sure that we set up the system to, to deliver on that. So that on the inflation side, I think there is where it's a bit more questionable. And, and that's just because the overall impact of the economy hasn't gotten to a place where we can get inflation. But that's simply the argument for why you need further growth, why we needed further expansion in lending to actually get to a point where we could see demand um, overtake supply and actually generate inflation again. Richard, can I ask you a broader question just about how you see risk appetite at the moment? Because I notice that uh, high yield spreads have started to move out again, back to where they were before the Fed started to get involved in the market. Uh, we've got this conversation about negative rates and those Fed minutes. I don't know how anybody could be bullish about them, given how they seem to talk a lot about the Fed's concern of a second round of the virus and the need for interest rates rate targeting across the curve here. So are we at an inflection point yet where, where you think the recent positive momentum we've seen in risk on assets begins to dissipate? I think I'm at a point where we need to be more concerned about that. You know, I've been looking at the markets in terms of, you know, we had that first initial crisis where can we stop this? We had a massive injection of liquidity, which gave us that liquidity rally. And I thought, you know, until we actually got to the point where we started to see economies reopening, you could have more of that optimism come through. And we can certainly have headlines by the day. Do we have a vaccine? You know, do we have a trial? Not. And then the next day going off. I think that's likely to continue for some time until you actually have that vaccine. There there is no means of, of having a full picture in terms of how we recover because we know we always have this this drag moving against us. But I think you're at the point now that we're starting to reopen, we get the the, the real news has to start to set in and, and recognize that many industries are not going to return to their pre-COVID uh, you know, capacity levels for a number of years. Um, that has to get factored in. Um, I think, you know, but you look at equities, that's just simply the only place where you can put, you know, your, your savings at this point. You know, if you're looking at, at FX, for example, you're looking at fair value, you used to use interest rate differentials. Now you use equity differentials. That's just become the, the overnight place to park money in cash while you're looking uh, to see what to do. On a credit side of things, this is where the pricing there is very difficult because until you know what that new capacity is and until you have a sense of where the stabilization is going to come in these industries, you have to deal with what is that default and delinquency rate likely to look like on the medium term once we move out of the liquidity phase and can really deal with solvency. So I think there is an area here. We know there's still downgrades coming. We know there's still some pass through. At this point, I think the repricing we've seen in credit has been roughly commensurate to where I think we're going to see labor markets and that deterioration go, which tends to to be the best signal for what kind of deterioration we're getting. But overall, I think that there's still probably, it's easier for, for risk assets to be flat to slightly lower than to see any further significant rally from here because we just simply have the rubber meeting the road of the bad news now. All right. Well, let's, um, let's just ask you for a few of your recommendations then. What do you think it's worth owning, uh, particularly in the FX space, whether that's developed or emerging at this stage? 
So I think, I mean, you know, within FX, it's probably been the least volatile of a number of these areas. And, and frankly, because, you know, everyone's doing the same policy. So on a relative basis, it gets very difficult to see any any clear standouts. But, you know, we are biased for, for more underperformance of risk. So this is where we've tried to, to uh, layer our positions in FX that way. So whether that's being short Aussie, uh, whether that's being long dollar CAD, or, or whether that's being short Euro and sterling, um, you know, against uh, dollars and yen, I think that sets you up for that movement there. And, and in general, that the point is, I think you want to be positioned for the long dollar at this point. In the medium term, yes, we can talk about a weaker dollar. And if we're going to get positive risk sentiment, it's going to mean a weaker dollar. But in the near term, as this repricing happened, and especially with all the significant stimulus and liquidity the Fed's put in, that liquidity now has to get elsewhere and get around the economy in terms of what we're seeing. Um, so I think, you know, being positioned slightly long dollar is, is beneficial there. Then when you look through emerging markets, that's probably similar to credit, where you've only seen about half of, of the, the negative uh, news priced in and the adjustment that has to happen. Um, so whether that's downside in next thing, Thai bots, whether that's downside in, in Hungary and Poland and Europe, these are the areas that I think you want to be positioned for if you're going to see further economic weakness um, going on in the US and, and Europe, where you're going to see that translated most likely into emerging markets. Richard, thank you very much for putting some calls on the table for us. Uh, Richard Kelly, Head of Global Strategy at TD Securities. Our U.S. colleagues will be speaking to Boston Federal Reserve President Eric Rosengren. Catch that later on tonight at 20 CET. Now, they'll also be speaking with Atlanta Federal Reserve President Raphael Bostic at 21.30 CET. So plenty of conversations with Fed members coming up later on today on CNBC. Ahead on the show, the largest political event of the Chinese calendar gets underway. But will Beijing set a growth target? If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Here's a look at the Asian markets in session today. Uh, a little bit of green moving on to the boards, but not much of it, as you can see. Very slim gains uh, for the Australian market and a flash of red ink there for the Hong Kong market. So more cautious mood setting in as investors eye. Some of the gains already witnessed on these markets, but the realisation that the road back economically will be very slow at uh, this point. The US Senate has passed a bill that could ban many Chinese companies from listing their shares on American stock exchanges. The legislation requires companies to certify that they're not owned or controlled by a foreign government. Republican Senator John Kennedy tweeted that the bill would stop the Chinese Communist Party from, quote, cheating on stock exchanges. US-listed shares of Alibaba, Baidu and JD.com fell on the news. China kicks off the first of its annual two sessions today, postponed from March due to the pandemic. 
The largely ceremonial Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference sets the stage for tomorrow's main event, the NPC. But the hallmark of past national congresses, an official annual growth target, is under question. Well, let's welcome to the team Sam Vardas, a new CNBC reporter with more. Sam, and let's just get into this growth target. doesn't matter at this point. We've got so much um, lack of clarity on the extent of the economic fallout. Does it matter if we don't get a target out of China this time? Well, we can't expect a huge amount of emphasis on that. And I would just like to start with um, the meeting today. I don't think uh, many people really uh, focus on today. It's really overlooked. It's really a curtain raiser, as you mentioned, for uh, this big uh, annual meeting of parliament, the NPC. And it's where some 2,000 members of China's top advisory body get together to discuss issues and advise the government. So it's largely political. And I think that is important uh, because right now internally President Xi Jinping is facing mounting pressure over this slowing economy and it also comes at a time uh, when China is finding itself increasingly isolated from the rest of the world over this pandemic and Beijing really set the tone for this meeting today swinging back at US criticism uh, but also standing very firm on its foreign policy and I think that's important in terms of uh, where China is likely to place itself uh, internationally over the course of this meeting. But uh, back to that growth target, look, not a huge amount of emphasis is expected. We are looking uh, more so at um, the fiscal stimulus, where it goes and the order in which it comes in, um, because that will uh, give some clues and represent the government's priorities moving forward this year uh, post-coronavirus. We know the big focus is on jobs and social stability. But of course, with jobs, you need employers. So I think um, it'll be very interesting to see um, how much China is willing to commit to things like uh, SMEs uh, and things like local governments in order to um, sustain um, the employment rate. Um, because of course, we know that that is key and critical to political stability in China. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.